Usually I start a sermon with a cool story about how I broke something at my house. Uh, I don't have any cool stories today. So I'm just going to kind of recap where we've been. We took a couple weeks off from this series that we've been in, in Exodus, called Outside In. It's a story of how God has, uh, or God uh, at uh, an appointed time in Israel's history took them from being slaves in Egypt and drew them out of Egypt into the promised land. We're in the middle of the story. Uh, and we've been introduced to the, to the main character of the book. His, guy, his name's Moses. Uh, it starts out, he's a baby. He is saved by God from a certain death. Uh, that had been decreed in that country. All the Israelite children, firstborns, uh, were to be killed. Uh, but Moses um, was put in the river and, uh, and escaped, uh, became the, the son of a, of a, of a princess. The, the princess of Egypt uh, took him as her own and, and raised him in the palace. And, uh, and now, uh, uh, in chapter 2, we see him as a full-grown man, and he is uh, uh, interested in his fellow Israelites. He, he knew he was one of them. And so, uh, in his compassion for them, he, he sought to uh, be their defender. He actually got involved in like a, a, a brawl. A, a, an Egyptian boss was uh, beaten up on a, on a Jewish slave, and, and Moses inserted himself and actually inserted himself to the point where he killed the boss, right? And if you were here and we talked about that, you know, he went out the next day and uh, saw a couple other uh, Jews uh, fighting amongst themselves. They were having a you know, a fist fight just between them. And he, he, he again, he's just a bouncer. He's just going everywhere, breaking up fights. And he goes to these guys, why are you beating up on each other? And, and the one guy says to Moses, are you going to kill me like you killed the boss? From that moment, uh, Moses fears for his life. He leaves Egypt for a place called Midian. He meets uh, his uh, father-in-law, future father-in-law, and uh, his future wife, um, they get married, and he kind of hangs out there. And we fast forward now to where we are here in chapter 3, 40 years later. 40 years is a long time. Anybody here under the age of 40? Some of us, not many of us. Uh, but if you're under the age of 40, I mean, you haven't even lived long enough to be, you know, in this story, or at least in this part of the story. Moses, it tells us, uh, uh, is 40 years old when, when the things that happen in chapter 3 occur now, I'm not going to be able to cover all of chapter 3, so let me fast forward a little bit. The, the, from verses 15 to 22, um, we're going to see in that part after God has called Moses through a burning bush. Spoiler alert, there's a bush in this part. Um, he, he tells him, here's what's going to happen. And he basically, it's, if, if, you, if you don't want to read the next 10 chapters of the book of Exodus, you can just read the last seven verses of the chapter 3. It just tells you everything that's going to happen. God calls his shot. You're going to go to the elders of Israel, and then you're going to go to Pharaoh, and he's going to say, no, I'm not letting my people go, and so I'm going to send a bunch of plagues, and then eventually he's going to let the people go, and then as they're leaving, they're going to take all of the gold and silver from the Egyptian homes. Scene. I mean, that's it. He just calls his shot, next 10 chapters. But we're going to spend most of our time in the first 14 verses, and they start like this. Now, Moses was keeping uh, the flock of his father-in-law. He's 80 years old at the telling of this story. His father-in-law is a guy named Jethro. In chapter 2, he was called Ruel. It's probably had a couple different names, like my name is Mark, but in college they called me Bucket. Maybe Jethro was his nickname from college. I don't know. Um, but he was the priest of Midian, and he had this flock uh, of his father-in-laws uh, to the west side of the wilderness, and, and he came to a, a mountain called Horeb. It was later to be known as the Mountain of God. Horeb, later in the story, gets a name change as well. It's called Mount Sinai. And so it's here on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai that everything that's about to take place takes place. It says in verse 2 that the angel uh, or the messenger 
of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. I have a big fire pit in my backyard, and I am grateful for it because there's lots of things, like the uh, inside of my trailer that I'm fixing up with Eleanor had all this wood panel that we couldn't use. It was old and uh, water damaged, and so we ripped it out of there. And I didn't even have to wait for the garbage guy to come because I just stacked that up in a way too big a pile and poured way too much inflammable liquid on it. And then I just lit a match. And about half an hour later, the entire inside of that trailer was gone because it had been reduced to ash and smoke in the midst of my fire pit. This bush was unlike any fire you and I have ever started because the fire uh, was apparent and evident. But the bush was not consumed. Ever wonder why this was happening? Maybe you're reading this for the first time. You're like, no, Mark, tell me. I think God was trying to, in this, what's called a theophany. Uh, Theos is God, uh, and theophany is basically this appearance, like epiphany, it's this appearance of God. In this theophany, uh, God chose to show Moses, uh, I am self-sustaining. I am independent of need. There's nothing that keeps me going. You and I, anybody eat this morning? Did you do that just because you were hungry? Or do you sense that somewhere in your DNA you are programmed to eat? Because if you don't eat, uh, do that long enough, you're not going to be alive. Our food and our water, they're our fuel. And we eat it and we get rid of it and then we eat some more. And that's how we roll. God does not roll that way. There is nothing that sustains him because he is independent and above all of creation, the creator of all things. He requires nothing for his existence. We'll talk about this more in a second as we uh, discuss his transcendence, but that's why the bush didn't burn. It was his illustration to Moses. I don't need anything. Now, here's something we got to see here, though. God often does extraordinary things to draw the ordinary into his plan. He does extraordinary things to draw us, his ordinary creation, into his plan. Here it's a burning bush. You remember the story of the disciples in the New Testament? He went to a bunch of fishermen, and he told them to go fishing in the middle of the day, which is not the time to go fishing. But they got the biggest fish catch of their lives, and that was kind of Pete's sign, hey, maybe I should follow this guy. He does it again at the end of uh, his three and a half years with them after he's resurrected. Uh, there on the shores in John chapter 20, he's, he's telling them to go fishing again. And he does it twice. He doesn't need to be a miraculous thing. Now, everybody uh, in our day and age kind of wants a burning bush or a, or a big catch as a sign from God. Write it in the sky. Let me know what I'm supposed to do. Make it obvious. A lot of times, he just does extraordinary things that aren't necessarily miraculous, but they're out of the ordinary. Like, in great part, I'm standing before you as a follower of Jesus Christ because God saw fit in a basketball game in my college career to, to rip my ankle and my Achilles up to the point where I had to lay on my back for three weeks. And it's in those three weeks, after an injury in a basketball game of all things, that God brought me to a point of understanding who he was and my need for him. He'll kind of break up the monotony of our regular schedule and bring things to us that say, hey, we need to deal with something. You need to be a part of what I'm doing. So Moses, chapter 3, verse 3, sees this bush and he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. 
and why this bush is not burned. That sounds like a Shakespearean line right there. I, will, I shall turn aside. Yeah, if you see a bush and you look closer and you see that the bush is not disintegrating as it's burning, like the leaves are staying green, that might be worth a close-up. Anybody with me on that? I've, I've, I've paused to see much less cool things, right? <laughs> I think my toast looks like the Virgin Mary. Anyway, all right, uh, that's online. Anyway, uh, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, this is so great, when the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Moses said to God, here I am. I found it really interesting as I was studying this week that God waited for Moses to see, to be compelled and to move in his direction. God doesn't have to do it that way. Everybody gets that, right? Like God could just headlock all of us. And at times, anybody been in the headlock? Yeah, he'll do that. But most of the time, what God is hoping for is not our, you know, headlock submission, but our, our heart interest, our, our desire to come and see and to, and, to, and to join him, not from compulsion, but because we desire to see him. And to know. God waits to see if Moses will turn aside, and when he does, that's when he calls him. Moses, Moses calls him out by name. Now this burning bush that isn't burning is talking. Well, now I'm really going over there, right? Because I'm sure Moses is looking around, he's like, sheep, trees, grass, burning bush, no humans. There's something going on here. So Moses, hearing this and understanding on some level that this is different, says these words. He says, here I am. These, these are words that are used over and over and over in the stories of, of people in the scripture. Like Samuel was this little boy. He was uh, given to the, uh, the ministry of God in the, in the uh, Hebrew temple and uh, his mom, you know, gave him to Eli, the, the high priest, and, and he has a dream one night, and he keeps thinking it's Eli, the guy, you know, that he's a servant to, saying, hey, come here, I need you. And, uh, and he'd go to Eli two, two three times. Second, second time, uh, he comes to Eli. Eli, just both times, says, go back to bed. And the third time, Eli says, wait a minute. Maybe, I'm not calling you, maybe that's God calling you. And so Samuel goes back to bed, and he says, says those words. God says, Samuel, and Samuel says, here am I. Isaiah says it, here am I, so send me. Here am I is one of these, it's kind of like Old English, uh, it's, it's Hebrew, but in the Old English days, if, if you uh, met somebody on the street uh, and, and you met them and you esteemed them, you would say this to them, not just, hi, how you doing? Um, you would say, at your service. Hi, my name's Mark. Hi, Marty, how you doing? At your service. It's this um, putting yourself in submission to somebody. That's what Moses does. He's going to recant here in a little bit, just so we're clear. Initially, he's very interested in serving whatever this burning bush is wanting, but uh, he's going to have his doubts. God pauses in the conversation. In verse 5, he says this. He says, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. It's the first time uh, in, in the Bible that, that this word holy has been used by God to describe himself. Holy is, uh, in our thinking, a lot of times we think of like clean or pure or right and righteous. 
Certainly, uh, that word bears up those things, but holy in its truest form just means set apart, other, not like you. Uh, We read from other parts of Scripture that God is so powerful, so um, glorified, so righteous and, and holy and other that we can't even exist in his presence in our current sinful form. Like Moses wants to see him later in their relationship, and God's like, yeah, no, Moses, you're not going to survive that. And Moses says, well, look, I'll, I'll look through the cleft of the rock like a pinhole camera. I'll just see a little smidgen. And God says, well, maybe, maybe you can handle that. But he says to Moses, hey, now you got to understand, this isn't just some cool magic trick, a bush that's not burning, but it is burning. This is me. And you need to take off your sandals. Anybody know I said take off your shoes? Some of you have a house, that, that the, that's the rule. If you're coming through the threshold, you're taking those shoes off. I grew up with a friend, that was the rule. But in the Middle East, especially uh, back in those days, uh, shoeless people were slaves. For the most part, if you served as a servant, you served without sandals. It's kind of an identifying mark. And so God says, hey, take off those shoes. I'm holy. I'm not like you. I'm above you. And you need to be my servant. He introduces himself, verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses, upon being introduced to his God, hides his face, for he was afraid to even look at him. Uh, A right posture by the way, because uh, as, as we talk about this burning bush, what do we learn about God from the burning bush? The first thing we learn about God from the burning bush is that God is above us. He is mighty, the great I am, uh, worthy, fearsome. We should tremble, not just at the sight, but at the thought of his grandeur. He created all things. As this bush illustrates, he is um, uh, self-existent, transcendent, above us. He is, uh, as, as he's described himself, above all the great patriarchs of the history of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He exists outside of time. He's eternal because he has been the God of each of those men as they lived here on the earth. He's wholly set apart. He's all-powerful because he can override nature and make things burn without them being consumed. He can talk out of a bush. He's God, not to be trifled with. I listen to people some some days as they're talking to me about their beliefs and and a lot of times they'll have their objections about God. They'll be like, well, if, you know, if, if the God we serve is going to do these things that we read in the scripture, if the God we serve you know, is going to say that this particular choice in life is wrong, or the God we serve, and, 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 and they, they go to all the things about God that they don't like, and then they say, well, since God isn't like that, I, I just can't serve him. As if like their you know, requirements are what God should live up to. What they're really saying is, I'm God, I'm the determiner of, if there is a God, who God will be, and if he's that, then we can be friends. But it totally leaves out this central truth about who God is. He's God. He picks who he is. 
He calls the shots because it's his to call. We don't get to say to him, hey, if you bend and bow to my whims, then you get me. He's transcendent. But, okay, let's get to the good news here. This almighty, all-powerful creating God who is fearful and fearsome and so far above us has chosen because of his love for us to be right next to us and even to dwell within us. Because this transcendent God is also the God who is with us. He's an imminent God. So we sing at Christmas, right? What's Jesus' name? Emmanuel. El is the Hebrew um, you know, word for God. And Emmanuel means God imminent, God with us. This God who's so far above us chooses to involve himself with us. We, we read that here in the story of Moses. Then the Lord said, verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, uh, out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey into the place of the Canaanites. Here they come, all the ites. The Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. We can be sure that God's doing the exact same thing with us in our lives. He sees what's going on. He's aware of those things in this life, those people in this life who are oppressing us. He cares about what happens to us. And some are like, well, he didn't in this situation, he didn't in this situation. Listen. Bad things happen, it's a broken world. But instead of looking at the bad things that have happened, can we pause for a second and look at all the good things that shouldn't have happened? And all the amazing things that God has blessed us with? And focus on those things that an imminent God, a God who is with us, has chosen to give us? They happen every day. My daughter Kyle lives in Tallahassee, she's finished her degree at Florida State, she's just kind of hanging out up there for another semester, living with some of the friends that she went to school with, and uh, she was on her way to work one day, and uh, the back tire on her Toyota Camry went kaplooey, I mean shredded, just gone, right? Now we had uh, earlier in her driving career, uh, sat outside of our house, and I showed her and my two boys how to change a tire. Anybody want to guess how that went? As far as remembering those things. Fortunately, though, as she was starting to stress out about, you know, remembering how to even find the donut in the trunk, which is not that hard. It's a trunk. It's in there. Uh, two guys come up. I'm calling them Bocephus and uh, Jethro uh, for, you know, for Moses' dad. Anyway, uh, uh, but these two guys come up, and uh, she's, she's wary. She's, she's in a parking lot. It's a public place, middle of the day, but she's still wary. Two strangers come up. Um, and they started asking her about her tire, and she's like, yeah. And they said, well, well, we'll switch that out for you. We'll put the donut on there for you. And she's telling me this story after the fact, and she's like, Dad, they were so nice, and they were so gracious, and they put the tire on for me, and now I need to know how to get another tire, and that's what I really need from you. And I said, wait a minute, Kai, pause. Pause for a second. You understand that that was God sending you those servants to provide in that moment. Well, I guess. What do you mean you Guess. Of course that's what that was. That was an answer to your parents' prayer. We pray every day for you to be provided for, protected, for God to act on your behalf. And so even these things that we kind of say, oh, of course that happens in the world that we live in. No, they, those things don't happen in this world that we live in. 
God is gracious to us and provides for us. That day that you walked up to the cashier and you realized you left your wallet at the office, but all of a sudden you stuck your hand in your pocket and you had 10 bucks and your lunch was 9.50. That wasn't like a, oh, blessed jeans, how are, you know, I mean, <laughs> that was the grace of God. Theophanies happen all over the place. God shows up all over the place. And we fail to see. It's because he's with us. He cares for us. Crazy about us. He shows his transcendence at the burning bush. He reveals his eminence to us as well. But, but don't miss this. This is what we're going to spend the rest of our time in. God chooses, here in Moses' story and in ours, to enact his will through us. God chooses to use us to enact his will. Look, wait, this, this was the whole burning bush point here it comes, right? Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I am so glad, and I hope you are too, that we serve not just a transcendent God, but an imminent God, and not just an imminent God, but a God who chooses to call us out of our wilderness and into a life with him. There's that initial call, we call it salvation. I was a nine-year-old kid uh, sitting at a campfire in a Christian camp in eastern Canada when the gospel for the first time made sense to me. And I made a move. I got up from the log I was sitting on and I walked forward to where this preacher or whoever it was was talking. And as a nine-year-old, I, in the childlike faith capacity that I could, put my faith in Jesus Christ. Fast forward 10 years later. 10 years have gone by, mostly Christian-y. Some parts not. I'm a sophomore in college and that injury that I told you about earlier came and it's in those three weeks that I went from just kind of being this nominal, orbiting, you know, this Jesus to being more in tune and in step with who he was and how he wanted me to live my life. That was my awakening. I probably was Christian up until then, but, but I really wasn't online with Jesus until I was 19 years old. But in both of those instances, God was beckoning to me, ordering circumstances so that I might respond to him. God's a caller of those who are in the wilderness. But he doesn't stop there at salvation. He calls us daily after that to come and be a part of what he's doing in his world. I was uh, 21 years old and wanted to get married to my wife. I didn't have a job. I'd gone to a Bible school, kind of by default. I wanted to play basketball. That's where it started. Uh, but I graduated with a degree in Bible theology and Greek. Not a lot of jobs on Wall Street for that one, right? And so, uh, never applied for a job. Uh, uh, never sought, you know, my next place of employment. I just sat down to dinner one day with a guy that was working at the church that my father was a pastor at and said, hey, do you want to come and serve in the youth ministry? I said, how much does it pay? And he said, well, I don't know if that's the reason you do this, but uh, he told me what it was, and I said, sounds like we can live off of that. Let's do it. It was 12,000 bucks a year. So I started my job as a, 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 a youth pastor, a junior high youth pastor. It's great, I got to go to theme parks and, you know, tell fart jokes in my, story, you know, my sermons and, sorry. 
It was in 1993. I had been uh, in ministry for two years that my senior pastor tapped me on the shoulder and said, I need you to preach on Sunday night this coming month. And I was like, whoa, oh, oh, oh. nope, that's not what we're doing here. I'm, I'm hanging out with the 13-year-olds. I'm good at that. I don't want this 23-year-old, you know, up talking about who God is. And those. But he said, yeah, we're going to do it. And so there I went. I preached on the prodigal son. I am so grateful there's no tapes. <laughs> Absolutely the worst sermon ever preached ever. But 10 years later, uh, in 2003, around there, uh, the senior pastor I was working under in Dallas said, okay, you're up this coming Sunday. And I was like, bro, I thought I'd been there, done that. But uh, uh, I started preaching. And he trained me and, and uh, admonished me and encouraged me to the point where uh, I ended up hearing about a church from Brandon, Florida, and they decided that they wanted to hire a guy who'd never been a senior pastor to come and be their senior pastor. And so 15 years ago, I came here, and I've been preaching at you ever since. And, but here's my point. Here's my point. My point. No, don't. My point is this. My point is this. God called me when I was nine. I responded to him more fully when I was 19. He put me in a role that I would never have really wanted to be a part of when I was 21. He put me on a stage and started me preaching, and now that's what I do. And I do that because that's what God does. He calls us out of the wilderness and into his plan. Now, not a, you know, most of us in here aren't going to be called to go to a nation where there's a slave um, you know, people, uh, <laughs> you know, and be asked to go to the, the head of the government and ask them to release them. That's what Moses got called to do. We're not going to get that one. Most of you in here aren't going to get called into full-time ministry. And just so you know, we're all full-time ministers. Don't, whatever. But everyone in here is called. Everyone in here, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and even if you're not yet, like if you're here this morning and you're not following Jesus yet, I believe you're here because Jesus is calling you out of your wilderness. And it's time for you to have faith in Christ. But I know a lot of you have already responded to that call, but I'm here to tell you if that's the case, God is calling you to next things. He wants to involve you in his plan. I read a book uh, some 30 years ago by a guy named Henry Blackaby. And he summarized it this way in his book, Experiencing God. He said, God is always at work around you. He never stops. He never rests. He's always moving his narrative, his story forward. But God pursues a continuing love relationship with you that is real and personal. I love that about our God. He's transcendent, but he's imminent. He's with us, and he wants to be a part of our lives because he loves us, and he wants us to love him too. God invites you and I to become involved with him in his work. That's what we're studying here today in the story of Moses. He chooses by, listen, it probably, <laughs> if I was God, I would involve us. And some of you are like, well, that sounds mean, Mark. Are you kidding? Have you met Christians lately? Like, we're not the most obedient, you know, compliant group. It would be way easier if God would just do for us, right? Instead of involve us. But in his infinite wisdom, and because he wants us to experience him and know him in ways that only we can learn from serving with him and for him. He involves us. Now, God speaks to us by the Holy Spirit through the Bible and prayer and circumstances in the church to reveal himself and his purposes and his ways. With Moses here in this story, it was the burning bush, right? It was that theophany that caught Moses' eye. But today, I believe that God chiefly speaks to us through his word. 
He's given us his scriptures. He's, he's given us his message. Now, he still speaks to us through our circumstances. He still speaks to us uh, through our prayers as he answers them and, and speaks to our spirit, uh, those answers. He, he still reveals himself to us through his church and those within the church. I'm so grateful for the many of you who have shown me uh, God and his ways and the ways that you've lived or spoken to me in the past. But I just want to make sure we're clear on this. If you ever, you know, look to your circumstances or look to the answers in your prayers that you're you're hoping for, or if you ever just go to people who are Christians and look to them, but you don't tether what you're hearing in those spaces with the things that you're reading in God's Word, you are um, on the way to perhaps being an error. Because all those other things need to line up with God and His Word. Is everybody with me on that? There's all kinds of churches that have relied on, you know, circumstances and answered prayers and, and, and man's ideas, and they've gotten away from God's word. But God speaks to us. His Holy Spirit reveals his will to us through those things. And then God invites us to work with him. And when he does invite us to work with him, as we're going to see here as we close out, it's going to... Bring a a crisis to your life, a crisis of belief that will require faith and action. Because when God chooses to use us, um, we're just going to have questions. And Moses did upon hearing that God wanted him to go to Egypt. First question that Moses had of God is, who am I? That's what he says, verse 11. Moses says to God, Who am I? That's where I got it, right there. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's an understandable question. Does everybody get what God just asked Moses to do? Uh, Hey, guy, uh, I know you've been on the lam for 40 years for a crime that you committed in Egypt. Your wanted poster might still be up in the post office, but here's the deal. I want you to go back there and not just kind of hang out with some of the Jews that you, you know, befriended or, or just kind of be there and, and, you know, start a life group and have a little, you know, something, something. I want you to go to the palace and I want you to tell Pharaoh that he needs to let a million plus people go. Have a nice day. <laughs> Moses is probably thinking, uh, I'm a shepherd. If you want me to go free some sheep, I know how to do that. Uh, certainly, I'm a wanted man, but even if these 40 years have gone by and they've forgotten, you know, the statute of limitations, whatever, um, if that's the case, I'm a forgotten man. I got no pull. I'm a shepherd from Midian that no one knows, probably. And no one has any reason to listen to. Beyond that, I'm a man with no country. The Jews rejected me, even though I'm one of them. The the Egyptians loathed me and ordered my death. But here's the big one. This one is ours. A lot of times when God calls calls us, Moses is probably thinking, I'm a failure. I can't do this. Who am I? He might even be thinking, Lord, I already tried to do this. Where were you 40 years ago when I stepped in in that fight? I was trying to free one of your slaves back then. We all know how that turned out. I just can't. Is anybody that your your default when God comes to you and says, I need you? You say, I just can't. 
You're not alone. But read the next verse with me. In verse 12, God does not answer Moses' question. He doesn't come to Moses and say, hey, Mo, here's why you're the perfect guy for this. You're Egyptian and Israeli. You know the Egyptian language and their customs. You know your way around the palace. I don't even have to give you like, you know, a a pin to drop. You you don't even need a, a maps on this one. You're perfect. You've spent 40 years in the wilderness being humbled and being prepared for this. You're perfect. You're the right guy. He doesn't say any of that stuff. He doesn't go on Facebook and tell everybody how great you are, you know. Pump up your tires, make you feel better, you know. He just says, no. He says in verse 12, but I will be with you. Who are you? Who cares? Let's talk about me, God says. I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you, that when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He's basically saying, listen, Moses, this is on lock. This is a sure thing. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. If I go with you, you can't fail. In fact, I'm calling my shot right here. We'll meet right back here. Ever done that with someone? You're so sure that something's going to go great. You go do this, you go do this, and we'll meet right back here. He says, I'm going to go with you. You're going to go into Egypt. You're going to do all these things, and we're going to lead all of my people out of slavery right back to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where I will intersect with them. I'll give them my laws. I'll see you in 14 chapters. (laughs) We'll meet right back here. He's just saying, Moses, it doesn't matter who you are. Because God says, I am me, and that's all you need. We have a problem, us here on earth. We, we think we're something when we're nothing. And because at times we think we're something when we're nothing, when we feel like we're nothing, we don't think we can do anything. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says in Galatians 6, 3, if anyone thinks he's a, he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We, we should never get pumped up and pompous and proud. But... On the inverse, we should never think that we are incapable, especially if we are in this life with the God who made us and who is with us and who saved us and is sustaining us. Us plus God equals anything. Us minus God equals nothing. It's all about who you're with. I, uh, sitting in my house a few nights ago, probably longer than that, a couple months now. Uh, I'm sitting in the chair that I watch TV in, and in the door comes a person I've never seen in my life. Has anybody ever had this happen? It happened at my house. Young man just walks in, hey! And I was like, uh, hey, who are you? And what are you doing in my house? Like, I'm, I'm getting ready, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grabbing the Coke bottle that's next to me, we're gonna go, right? This, I mean, I'm not going down without a fight. And he says, oh, I'm here with Cooper. Uh, unbeknownst to me, um, these guys had you know, come over and they were in the, the room that Cooper resides in, my son, and, and they'd been hanging out. And this kid had left for a little bit, uh, long enough for me to come home and you know, kind of get done with the day and sit down in my chair and then return. I hadn't heard the other guys, didn't know that they was, you know, there was a party going on in my house. And so he comes in and he's like, well, hey, 
at that moment, we're going to go, right? But as soon as he says, well, I'm here with Cooper. Oh, well, he's right back there. See ya. Which I, I thought about. I was like, well, that's, that's not very secure, is it? Like, <laughs> anybody coming into my house who says I'm with Cooper, I, I mean, they're just in. That's just all it is. But it's the same thing with our God. We come into the situations that he's called us to, and initially, those in that situation around us, or even ourselves, we might say, who are you? But then when we say, well, I'm with him, and he's with me, and because that's the case, this is going to happen by God's grace. It's a game changer. The other question that Moses asks is, who are you? Verse 13, then Moses says to God, if, I love that. How noncommittal is that one? I'm not saying I'm going to go. But if I do, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, which is already kind of a name, right? The God of your fathers. And they ask me, well, what's his name? What should I say to them? On what authority can I come to these people? In the first question, he's doubting himself. In the second question, he's doubting his audience. They're not going to believe me. What, what can I say to my audience that will convince them that you've sent me? And God says these famous words. We sang them earlier. He says in verse 14, say to them, I am who I am. And he said this, he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, he has sent me to you. It's the first time in our scriptures that God describes his name. He's, he's in other parts, as Moses has been writing down his story, he's used the, the, the Hebrew word Yahweh which in your Bibles most of the time is capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D, Lord. But here, for the first time, God says, here's my name. Yahweh is basically I am that I am, or I am. For 3,000 years, people have tried to figure out what God meant when he called himself I am that I am. I be that I be. I think at the very least we could say, um, I don't need description. I'm God. I am. That's it. I always was. I always will be. And I am. I'm the God of your fathers. I am Yahweh, Lord of lords, King of kings, the one true God. When you, when you get in front of those people, you just tell them, I am sent you. So grateful to know who God is. And I'll close with this. Those are the two biggest questions in life, people. Who am I and who is God? Who am I and who is God? John Calvin opens his institutes, this long theological writing with that statement. The two, I'm paraphrasing, but the two greatest questions that man needs to answer is who am I and who is God? 
Now, I'll tell you, most of the world is always on the lookout for who am I. They're trying to, we're defining ourselves in ways that we've never defined ourselves. Who am I is, is a big question with lots of answers in the world that we live in today, right? But I will submit to you that none of us can know who we are apart from knowing who God is. Because it's once... It's, it's, it's upon knowing who God is, that he created us, that he created us to worship him, to, to do life with him, to, to surrender to him, and to be infused with him and his grace and his glory and his, his power so that we can live this life. When, when I understand who God is, when I understand who I am is, then I can start to answer the question, who I am? Who am I? Well, if God's who God is, then here's who I am. I am in need of my God. Apart from him, I can do nothing. I am a servant of my God because he is transcendent and so far above me. But I am the grateful participant in life with my God because he is with me and I am with him. That's, that's how the answers go. If you're here this morning, you've never met God. You've never had the opportunity to put your faith in this God through trusting Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. We're going to have prayer partners around and and people to come and talk to you. Uh, when I go and baptize folks here in just a second, we're baptizing them because they made that decision. I know many of you already made that choice though, so listen to me. As we sing about the great I am, would you be willing to listen for his call today? Would you be willing to notice how he is intersecting in your life? Would you be willing by faith to step out with him just as Moses need to, even despite your questions, who am I, who are you? Just follow him. follow him. Let me pray for us. God, I want to thank you for a chance to talk about um, you and who you are, we and who we are. And I want to pray, God, that as we go through life, we would be um, aware, uh, living in anticipation of you calling us and calling us to the things you have for us. Grant us, God, the courage, the grace, the strength to follow you and whatever those things are. There's people in here, their lives are moving along and, and they just need to see you so that they can follow you. If there's people here this morning who don't know you yet, I pray that today is the day that they would, by faith, choose Christ and receive life with you as a result. Thank you for the people who are being baptized today for their choice. Uh, may we go on from this place looking for you, celebrating you, our great I am. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with us as we sing?